jumping back into a sermon series we started quite a while ago on the Sermon on the Mounts. And so we had taken a break for a bit because of Hurricane Harvey to um, deal with some emotions after that and then to look theologically through the scriptures at some of the questions we ask ourselves after natural disasters. Um, But before that, a while ago, we had started a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, If you're not familiar, um, the Sermon on the Mount is one of Jesus' greatest hits. It's one of his most famous sermons from Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, It is one of his most quoted uh, pieces of work that we have recorded from him in history. And we have actually gotten through a lot of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in chapter 7 at the beginning. Chapter 7's kind of short. We could probably finish the sermon series in just a few weeks uh, if we wanted to, but it's me, and so in three or four years, we'll probably be close to wrapping it up. Um, But as we get back started in the Sermon on the Mount, um, I wanted to take some time to ease our way back into it um, because we have been out of it for so long, and the Sermon on the Mount can be so disorienting to us. Uh, as as Christians in the West, as Christians who I would say are not necessarily shaped in the ways of the Sermon on the Mount as much as perhaps um, one would hope that we were. Um, so the Sermon on the Mount, these these chapters five through seven in Matthew, um, are very important. But we started off our sermon series by noting that the history of interpretation, so the different ways that people have read and understood the Sermon on the Mount, is a history largely of people finding new ways to rationalize and explain away what Jesus says, to find new excuses for why Jesus didn't mean what it seems like he actually said he meant. Um, And you might say that the Sermon on the Mount itself is a litmus test, I can tell from talking to someone, um, their views on the Sermon on the Mount can tell me a lot about what they think about other things, theologically. About what they think about God's relationship with the world, about what they think about um, God's image, about what they think about the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, about what they think about the authority of the Scriptures, um, what they think about the end times and eschatology and all those types of things. It's a litmus test for so much of who we are and how we act. Um, I can tell by the actions of Christians who takes the Sermon on the Mount very seriously versus people who primarily focus maybe more on Paul and just on the idea of being forgiven and not necessarily on the idea of discipleship or following Jesus and obeying his commands. Um, And what I want to do this morning is... um, orient us again into the Sermon on the Mount. We've done obviously a lot of studying of the actual words in the Sermon on the Mount, going verse by verse through it. Um, But the Sermon on the Mount as a whole has a lot of different angles that you can look at, um, a lot of different lenses that you can put on and examine. Um, and, And we don't always have enough opportunity and time to do that. But but I think we do this morning as we kind of slowly reintroduce ourselves back into this series. And so here's what I want to do this morning. Two things. I want to run through a brief history of the interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount so that you have a good foundation to understand how I read and interpret the Sermon on the Mount. Does that make sense? 
I know history might sound boring to you. I'll try to make it not boring. But it will give you a good context for why I say the types of things I say about the Sermon on the Mount. And why I expect you and me to do the things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Where there are other churches in the same city that we're in who might not expect you to obey those commands. And then two, I want to actually just read you the Sermon on the Mount in its whole. Without commentary. Without stopping. I want to just read it to you and allow you to absorb it and see what difference that makes for you. See what stands out for you um, in that context. So we begin with the history of interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. The early church, the first Christians, the apostolic Christians, the post-apostolic Christians, they saw no problem with the Sermon on the Mount. Again, we've talked about the Sermon on the Mount is famous because there's lots of problems with it. It seems to be very radical in the ethics it demands of Jesus' followers. It says things like, give to one who begs from you without exception. And you'd think, well, obviously I would run out of stuff eventually. People always ask me for stuff. It says, do not lust after anybody. And people are going like, I'm not a pervert, but that seems like it's an impossible kind of thing for me to do here. The ethics are, are radically high. The, the early church of the patristic period, the, church of the, the period of the church fathers, they saw no problem with the text. Um, they primarily viewed the text as the handbook for what it means to live as a virtuous Christian. They saw the Sermon on the Mount as a series of commands or as a vision of what it might look like to mature as a Christian, as someone who follows Jesus. That over time, through practice and habit and discipline, we might more and more and more look like the kind of person described in the Sermon on the Mount. And we've talked about this as we've gone through certain examples, right? Um, you might be an angry type of person. Jesus talks about angry uh, or anger issues. And we might say, it's not that easy, right? Just snap your fingers and decide I won't be angry. But there are certain practices that you can take that over the course of time will kind of make it second nature for you not to react in anger. We call this virtue ethics. You practice um, doing something and before you know it, it becomes a habit. It becomes second nature. Your character is formed into a, a new and better version of you. This is how the early Christians saw the Sermon on the Mount. They didn't see it as contradicting with anything that the Apostle Paul said about us not earning our salvation. They didn't see it as contradicting um, any other issues or theological problems um, that you find throughout Christian theology. Um, and, and so they, they took it largely literally. They saw the sermon as commands to be followed. And so when Jesus talks about nonviolence, the early church was nonviolent. The early church did not think you could participate in the army. They didn't think you could be a soldier because it required violence. The early church was persecuted for not bowing down to the empire, for not making oaths to the emperor. I mean, they just took these commands and said, Jesus told us to do them. He must have had a good reason for it. And even if it costs us our life, we will, we will do that. 
Now, as time passes and circumstances in history change, readings start to change. For instance, you can follow the history of interpretation of passages about money, right? And early on, people read passages about money that seem very negative, kind of literally. It's easier for them because they're poor. So it doesn't really affect them that much, right? To read a passage about giving away all your money, that's not that much money, okay? All of a sudden, you have someone a few years later with a 401k, and they're reading this passage about giving away their money, and they're interpreting it a little more creatively, right? This passage is really talking about our our motives with our money, our intentions with our money. We can keep a lot of our money as long as we give some of it away. That's kind of what you see happening with the Sermon on the Mount throughout history. And so the first big development you have is in within Roman Catholicism. And they develop a kind of two-tier system of people who the Sermon on the Mount applies to. And so on one hand, some parts of the Sermon on the Mount apply to clergymen, um, to the priest, to monks. And on one hand, some parts of the Sermon on the Mount apply to lay people. And typically, it's kind of like varsity and junior varsity. The harder parts of the Sermon on the Mount apply to the priest, and the easier parts apply to the lay people. It gets at some point so extreme that uh, you have some Roman Catholic scholars who say salvation by grace is only for lay people. And actually, clergymen earn their salvation through works by following the Sermon on the Mount. You see how big of a difference that is? Now, that's a very extreme example. This is, not, this is not characteristic of the Roman Catholic faith, particularly now or back then. That's just an example of how they saw it. They separated the Sermon on the Mount into precepts. Precepts were commands for the clergy people, and then councils, and councils were commands for the, the lay people. You get, as a reaction to Roman Catholicism, what we call the Reformation. And two big names with the Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin. Martin Luther comes up with an interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount that fits his larger theological project um, that is still largely determinative of how we think about God and faith today, even if we're not Lutheran. We all have a bit of Lutheran inside of us. We're all a bit Luther, whether we like it or not. Um, when you think of the idea that God is angry at you because of your sins and through Jesus' death on the cross, he now has a different attitude towards you and you've been forgiven and you are at once a sinner and yet also viewed by God as a saint. This is an idea that Martin Luther created through his interpretation of Scripture. Um, you can thank Martin Luther for it. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm just saying this is where it came from, from Martin Luther, the the great Protestant reformer. When it came to the Sermon on the Mount, Martin Luther saw it as an impossible ideal. If you remember Luther as a person, he's a very guilty person. He feels very worthless. He, He sees God as such a holy and righteous God that he cannot possibly imagine how that God could forgive him or love him or save him. And, and so 
Martin Luther has his big breakthrough when he realizes that God doesn't accept him based on his actions, but on Jesus' actions. That he is still a worthless sinner, and yet he's loved because of Jesus' work on his behalf. And so when Martin Luther comes to the Sermon on the Mount, these commands by Jesus, he calls them impossible. And the theory of interpretation we get from this is called the impossible ideal command. Here's the general basis of it. The Sermon on the Mount is meant for you to read and then make a realization. Being that, I cannot do that. I cannot possibly fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. And so what do I need? I need to ask for forgiveness from Jesus. For Luther, the Sermon on the Mount was not something to aspire to. It was not a character to aspire to. It was setting the bar so impossibly high that you'd be forced to realize that you could never meet it. In this way, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of a negative thing. Does that make sense? It's kind of a negative tool. John Calvin, another important reformer, on the other hand, saw it in a little bit more balanced way. John Calvin saw... Jesus um, preaching the Sermon on the Mount as commands to inspire Christian formation. Um, And he just emphasized the fact that it was impossible except for the work and person of Jesus and the power of the Spirit living inside of the believer, which I think is a great reading, right? Obviously, we can't do the things um, required of us in the Sermon on the Mount without the work of the Spirit transforming our hearts and our minds and our souls without the work, forgiveness of Jesus on the cross. But Luther and Calvin, in in their interpretations of the sermon and in their theologies, are largely responding to a group called the Anabaptists. I don't know if you've heard about the Anabaptists. One day we might do a a sermon series on kind of the roots of our theology here at the church um, and kind of on, you know, the things that I preach about, why I preach about them, the words that I use, the way I look at texts in the Bible— I'm largely influenced by the Anabaptist tradition. Um, And if you know about the Anabaptist tradition, it's very easy for you to see that in my preaching, in my writing, in the way that I I interpret texts, I ask questions about texts. The Anabaptist, Anabaptist means to re-baptize. They were called the radical reformers. Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others were just called reformers. At that time, the, the city, the government, and the state were one. So all the records were kept together, right? You knew that you were born because the church had a record of your birth certificate and it was part of the government. And you knew that you were married because the church married you and it was part of the government's records. And you knew when you died because the church recorded your death, the priest was there, and then it was part of the government records. Luther and Calvin did not want to separate the system. They just wanted some theological reform. The Anabaptists, though, thought that by combining church and state, we had given up way too much of our commitment to Jesus. That to really follow Jesus, we can't obey all the commands of the Caesars of the world, the empires of the world, the emperors of the world, the kings of the world. And for Luther and Calvin and others, they thought this is just anarchy, right? If you do this, civilization itself will collapse. If you go re-baptize people, 
what does that mean about society? I mean, how do we keep track of people? How do we keep track of society? And so for a large period of time, the only thing that Roman Catholics and Protestants could agree upon was that the Anabaptists needed to be killed. And ironically, their favorite way of killing the Anabaptists was by drowning them. Get it? You want to be baptized? We'll put you in the water again if you really want to. The Anabaptists went to their deaths nonviolently because the main principle of the Anabaptists was a central commitment to following the commands of Jesus. The Anabaptists were what we might call red-letter Christians. They focused solely on the person of Jesus. They read the rest of the scriptures through the lenses of Jesus. When it came to the Sermon on the Mount, they read it in what we might call a literal, simplistic, face-value way. When Jesus said, don't make an oath, they said, we don't make oaths. When Jesus said, don't fight, they said, we don't fight. There's a story about an Anabaptist being chased by a reformer who is trying to kill the Anabaptist. The reformer gets stuck on some ice and is about to die. The Anabaptist comes back, saves the reformer, and the reformer then kills the Anabaptist. That was the heart of Anabaptism back then. They would save their enemies just to be killed by them. Because to them, that seemed like the example Jesus had given them. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. The Anabaptists had much more of that early church kind of reading of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And um, when we get into more modern interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount, you usually get some sort of mixture of this impossible ideal and then some sort of mixture of this. We should try to kind of follow the Sermon on the Mount. There are uh, a group of people, a theology called dispensationalism, um, which claims that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is only referring to a time period that would have happened if the Jews would have accepted him. And so since the Jews did not accept him, the Sermon on the Mount does not apply to anybody, and it should not be followed by anybody. As far as I'm aware, not many of us in the room are familiar with this theology and have not been affected by it, so I'm not going to go into it. I think it's way off board, um, and so I'm not, I don't even want you to get started thinking about this. Okay, um, But all this to say, you can clearly see, I interpret the Sermon on the Mount as normative for the Christian life. I think Jesus is giving us a picture here of what it means for humans to flourish in preparation for God's ultimate kingdom. This is how I read and interpret the Sermon on the Mount. And I also want us to recognize that the Sermon on the Mount is just that. It's a sermon. As a sermon, it's something to be heard. When it's written down in the Gospel of Matthew, it's written down to be read aloud to other people. And I don't know how aware you are of this or not, but reading something is much different than listening to it. In the same way that reading a book is much different than watching the movie version of it. A couple of years ago, we preached through the Gospel of Mark. And we have a member of our congregation, Jacob Milwe, who's an amateur actor, and he put together a performance of Mark, a live reading, like what might have, would have happened when someone had come to a new city 
with the letter of Mark and read it and performed it for that, that people group. Some of you were there, right? Anyone remember this? No one remembers this. I know for a fact that some of you were there. Uh, it was amazing for me. I, I blogged on it. That's the only reason I remember I was there. Um, and here were some of my observations. Um, this is a short little blog post. Two days ago, I was able to attend a live reading of the Gospel of Mark. The goal was to experience the Gospel in a way similar to the early Christian community orally. Uh, scholar, ask scholar Michael Bird states correctly, quote, Our earliest Christian literature is the textual product of oral activity from the early church, including proclamation, apologetics, exhortations, prayers, debates, hymns, creeds, and storytelling. In bold, several scholars have drawn attention to the Gospel of Mark in particular as a text designed to be orally performed and to be orally penetrating. And here's some observations I made after hearing Mark performed. The first one is, I'm irreversibly textual. I was raised to be a text person. All of us probably were. Even when I hear Mark, I'm seeing words written in my mind. Even when I'm hearing Mark just told us the story, I'm going, okay, this is the start of chapter 6. This is, this is verse 4 and this is verse 5. This is a part of Mark that scholars aren't sure if it is supposed to be in Mark or not. I'm irreversibly textual. It's hard for me to just be an oral learner anymore at this point. I remember thinking, it's a genuinely good story. That, that I'm not having to be a pastor and kind of, you know, be enthusiastic about it. That we had an intermission and I could not wait to get back to finish the story. It was a genuinely exciting story, interesting story. I remember that the cumulative effect of the story was greater than the sum of any one part. What we do as Christians in in preaching is we often take something that's large, a context, and we pick it apart in small pieces. And when we do that, sometimes we lose the greater cumulative effect of the bigger context. And the last observation I made was, as I was very often as confused as the disciples were in Mark. In Mark, the disciples are often confused. Listening to the story, you don't get to stop and explain things or offer up theories. So something happens, and I go, what in the world? What does that mean? And then the story keeps going, and you just kind of got to keep going with it. And I remember writing down, I'm very confused, just like the disciples, but just like them, I want to follow this Jesus guy. And so what I want to do this morning is read for you the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to perhaps make some similar observations. This is something I've done before. In 2003, I was asked to do this at a staff retreat. Um, Our worship pastor, Chris Henderson, was there. We were in a hotel getting ready for the worship session. And I can remember being nervous to just re-preach the Sermon on the Mount because it's a little offensive. And I knew there were people in the audience who I would not say these phrases to, to their face, if it wasn't for me just repeating what Jesus had said. I'd ignore it or be much more gentle about it. I was legitimately nervous. I've been asked real recently to, to, 
to re-preach the Sermon on the Mount in just a couple of weeks. And so since I've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, I've been thinking a whole lot about how I might want to do it this time. Um, and one of the, the things that has happened to me real recently is, is I was able to get an early copy of a new translation of the New Testament by an Orthodox priest. Um, and so I, when I started academia, I joined a blog that was fairly popular. Everyone else on the blog dropped out, so it was just me. Um, at one point, we got pretty popular. We were in like the top 10 blogs about Christianity on the internet. Uh, and my level of like making it in the world was when publishers would send me books for free. And so that's how I know I've made it, and they still send me books for free. I don't usually review them anymore. They still send them. It's okay with me. And so I got this early copy of a new translation of the New Testament, and it has been blowing my mind. It's a, it's a translation um, that's supposed to be pitilessly and ruthlessly literal and without regard to doctrine. And you might be surprised at how much of our English translations make decisions for us to calm the text down, to make it make more sense, and to make it more theologically appetizing to our common sense. Um, and he goes out of his way to ensure that that's not the case. Um, and since I was an undergraduate student spending hours a week studying Hebrew and Greek, and the scriptures were coming alive to me, I've not had as a refreshing experience with the Bible as I've had as I've been reading this. Because I read a passage and it's unusual to me. And it makes me think twice and three times and four times and five times about it. It's a very refreshing process. And so I'm going to re-preach the Sermon on the Mount right now for you. Um, I'd like for you just to listen. And this comes from David Bentley Hart's um, translation of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to do, my objective here is a little bit more than reading and a little bit less than performing. I just kind of want to re-preach it for you. It won't take long. The sermon's not that long of a sermon. Um, And the good news is for you, you've picked a good Sunday to come to church because I can guarantee you this is probably the best sermon being preached out of any church in Sugarland right now unless they're also re-preaching the Sermon on the Mount. I've spent like 40 hours during a week once working on a sermon, and it was a dud, right? I can guarantee you this one will be good. As we go through it, I want you to make observations. Do you read it differently when you hear it all together? Does something else stand out to you? Is there something happening in your life right now that makes one statement more important? It makes one statement resonate with you more than something else? Does the tone that Jesus used surprises you in certain places? Does the amount of time he spends talking about certain things surprise you? What would it feel like to be a first century Galilean sitting on the bottom of the hill as Jesus is on this mountain preaching the sermon? So Jesus ascends the mountain and he looks at his disciples in the crowds. And he says, How blissful the destitute and abject in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. How blissful those who mourn, 
for they shall be aided. How blissful the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. How blissful those who hunger and thirst for what is right, for they shall feast. How blissful the merciful, for they will receive mercy. How blissful the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How blissful the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. How blissful those who have been persecuted on my sake for what is right, for theirs will be the kingdom of the heavens. How blissful are you when they reproach you and persecute you and and say every false cause against you of evil for my sake. Rejoice, be glad, your reward in heaven is great. For thus they persecuted the prophets before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, by what shall it be made salty again? It's no longer of any use except to scatter outside for people to trample upon. You, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and place it under the dry goods basket. No, they place it on the lampstand and it illuminates all who are in the house. So then let your light shine before humanity that they may see your good works and praise your Father in the heavens. Do not think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. For amen, I tell you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not a single iota or a single seraph will vanish from the law until all of these things come to pass. And whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do likewise will be called least in the kingdom of the heavens. And whoever performs and teaches these commandments, this one shall be called great in the kingdom of the heavens. For I tell you, unless your uprightness surpasses those of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of the heavens. You have heard it was said to this of ancient times, you shall commit murder, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to judgment. Whereas I say to you that everyone who becomes angry with his brother shall be liable to the council, and whoever says, you worthless reprobate, shall be liable to enter Hinnom's valley of fire. If therefore you bring your gift to the altar and you recall that your brother holds something against you, leave your gift first at the altar and go be reconciled with your brother. Then come back and offer your gift. Be quick to show goodwill to the plaintiff against you while you're out on the street with him. Lest that plaintiff deliver you to the judge and the judge to the guard and you're thrown into prison. Amen, I tell you, you will most certainly not emerge from prison until you repay the very last penance. You've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, whereas I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
So if your right eye causes you to falter, remove it and fling it away from you, it's, it's far more expedient for you that one of your members should perish than it is for your whole body to be thrown into the valley of Hinnom. And if your right hand causes you to falter, cut it off, fling it away. It's expedient for you to lose one member of your body than for your whole body to perish and be departed into the valley of Hinnom. However, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, he must provide a certificate, a written letter of separation. Whereas I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife, except in cases of whorishness, causes her to commit adultery. And anybody who weds a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear oaths falsely, and you shall render up to the Lord what your oaths are sworn upon. Whereas I tell you not to swear at all, neither by the heavens, which is God's throne, nor by the earth, which is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, which is the great king city, Neither swear by your own head, inasmuch as you cannot make a single hair white or black. Rather, let your utterance be yes, yes, or no, no. Because it's from the roguish man that anything more extravagant than that comes from. And you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, whereas I tell you not to oppose the wicked man by force. No, rather, whoever strikes you upon the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. And to him who wishes to bring a judgment against you, so he may take away your tunic, go ahead, give him your cloak as well. And whoever presses you into service for one mile, of with him go two. Give to the one who begs to you, and do not turn away from one who wishes to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and shall hate your enemy. Whereas I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In this way, you may become sons of the Father who is in the heavens. For he makes his son to rise on the wicked and the good, and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. For if you only love those who love you, what recompense do you get? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing that's extraordinary? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And make certain not to practice your righteousness before men in order to be watched by them, because otherwise you have no recompense with your Father in the heavens. When you give alms, therefore, do not trumpet it aloud before you as those who are play-acting, and they do it in the synagogues and the streets, so they might be lauded by men. Amen, I tell you, they've received their recompense in full. But when you are giving alms, don't allow your left hand to know what your right hand does. In this way, your almsgiving is in secret, and your Father, who watches what is in secret, will reward you. 
And when you pray, don't be like those who are play acting, who love to pray while standing in the synagogues and on the corner of the streets so they may be visible to the men. I tell you truly, they have their recompense in full. But when you pray, enter into the private room and having that door closed, pray to your father who is in secret and your father who watches in secret. He will reward you. And when praying, don't babble repetitious phrases as the Gentiles do, for they imagine they'll be listened to by virtue of their prolixity. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Therefore, pray in this way, Our Father who is in the heavens, let your name be held holy, let your kingdom come, let your will come to pass, as in heaven, so also upon earth. Give us today bread for the day ahead and excuse us our debts just as we have excused our debtors. Do not bring us into trial, but rescue us from him who is wicked. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory unto the ages. For if you forgive men their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you should not forgive men, neither shall your Father forgive you. And when you fast, don't adopt a sullen countenance as those who like to play act. They disfigure their faces so that it's apparent to men that they're fasting. Amen, I tell you, they've gotten their full recompense. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that you show yourself not to be fasting to men, but rather just to your Father who's in secret. And who watches what is in secret, and who will reward you. Do not store up for yourself treasures on the earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves penetrate by digging and steal. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor uh, rust destroys, and where thieves neither penetrate by digging or steal. For where your treasure is, There your heart will be. The lamp is the body of the eye. Thus, if your eye is pure, your entire body will be radiant. But if your eye be baleful, your entire body will be dark. So if the light within you is darkness, how great the darkness around you. No one can be a slave to two lords. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will stand for one and abstain for the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Therefore, I say to you, don't worry regarding your soul, what you're going to eat, regarding your body, what you're going to wear. Is not your soul more than food? Is not your body more than garments? Look at the birds of the sky. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into granaries. And your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more excellent than they? Who among you, by worrying, can lengthen the span of his life by a single cubit? And why do you worry over clothing? Look closely at the lilies of the fields. How they grow. And they neither labor nor toil. 
Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glandor and splendor was garbed like one of them. But if God thus clothes the grass today and throws it in the oven tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you, men of little faith? So again, don't worry, saying, what might we eat? What might we drink? What might we wear? For the Gentile people seek after all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first his kingdom and justice, and all of these things shall be supplied to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough evil of its own. Judge not that you may not be judged. For by whatever verdict you pass judgment, you shall be judged. And in whatever measure you measure, it shall be meted out to you. And why do you look at the straw in your brother's eye, yet you don't perceive the beam in your own eye? How is it you'll say to your brother, let me take that straw out of your eye and look, the beam is in your own eye. You charlatan, first pluck the beam out of your eye and then you'll see clearly to take the straw out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to the dogs or cast your pearls before the pigs lest they trample them with their feet and then turning on you, shatter you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door is opened. Or is it not the case that no man among you, if his son should ask for a loaf of bread, would give him a stone? Or if he would ask for a fish, you would throw him a serpent? If you, therefore, who are wicked, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in the heavens give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, all such things as you wish men might do to you, so do to them as well. For this is the law, for this is the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the path leading away to destruction is broad and open, and there are many who enter by it. For narrow is the gate and closed cramped the path leading to life, and those who find it are few. And beware of false prophets who come to you garbed as sheep, but inside are ravenous wolves. You will know them from their fruits. Persons do not gather grapes from thorns or gifts from thistles, do they? Every good tree produces good fruits, and diseased trees produce bad fruits. A good tree cannot produce bad fruits, nor can a diseased tree produce good fruits. Therefore, you will know them. By their fruit. And not everyone saying, Lord, Lord, to me will enter into the kingdom of the heavens. Rather, the one doing the will of my Father who is in the heavens. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
and exercise demons in your name and perform many acts of power in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone, therefore, who hears these words and enacts them will be like a man who was wise and built a house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the rivers flooded, and the winds blew and fell upon the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not enact them shall be likened to a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain descended, and the rivers flooded in, and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell, and the fall of that house was a great fall. Let's pray.